This is Healthy Rounds with Dr. Anthony Alessi, sponsored by St. Francis Hospital, Ratchford Eye Center, Hartford Healthcare, MD Advantage, and UConn Health Orthopedic and Sports Medicine. Healthy Rounds provides general information regarding medical conditions and diseases. The information is not intended to create a doctor-patient relationship. You are encouraged to consult your own medical provider for advice that applies to your own medical care. And now, Dr. Anthony Alessi on WTIC News Talk 1080 and WTIC.com. Welcome to Healthy Rounds, the show that provides you with up-to-date medical information, and we answer all of your health questions. I'm your host, Dr. Anthony Alessi, and it's once again great to be back with you live on this program for what is now our 93rd consecutive program as we work our way through the COVID-19 pandemic. And it is clearly the pandemic that is not going away. As you hear every day on the news, we are now dealing with the new variant, the BA5 variant, which is now dominant in the United States. And with each of these variants, they become smarter from the standpoint of their ability to evade our vaccines and transmit themselves better in the sense of uh, spread, not just uh, in close quarters, but whenever you're inside or even outside if you're close to someone. So it's important for us to stay safe. But, you know, so many people just think this thing is over, right? It's time to take off your mask. People are tired of wearing masks on planes or in an airport. Let me give you some perspective here. On our 57th program dealing with the pandemic, that was July 10th, 2021, our COVID positivity rate was 0.82%. And that was up from a week before where it was 0.5%. So this time last year, we're at less than 1%. That means fewer than one people, one person out of every 100 has COVID. Fast forward to today, where are positivities at 10.5%? And that's an understatement. So basically 10 and a half people out of every 100 that you see have COVID. And the reason it's more accurate, the previous number last year was more accurate is because the only way you could accurately test was through PCR. So we had good control of who was positive, who wasn't. Now with people testing at home, we don't have that number. And it's not just Connecticut. New York is at 14%. And yet... We're saying, this is over. Let's get back to our lives. So it's no wonder that the numbers are climbing. There are 120,000 new cases every day in the United States. And it's not just the United States. Europe is under the same pressure now. right? Everybody tried to lighten up, and things are back to where they were. Now, there are fewer people dying, but the number of hospitalizations are steadily going up and increasing as well. Overall, there are 1,023,619 deceased Americans with deaths in some way related to COVID-19. Now, clearly the vaccines and the immunity you get from exposure are now less effective. We know that. 
But we have to get back to what we said we needed to do in the beginning, right? So if you remember, and you're a regular listener to our program, it was very basic, right? Masks, social distancing, wash hands. Identification of a virus. So if someone's sick, you need to identify them, isolate them, and do contact tracing. We've gotten away from that. Contact tracing was a joke. We were never able to do that. And even identification. Now, in New York, I said the number's up to 14%. But they've cut back the amount of places where you can get a test. And it's the same here in Connecticut. It's harder to get a test done. So people rely more and more on the uh, home tests. And what you need to do now, and my advice is use the data. Learn from the data and let that be your guide. If you see the numbers going up in your area, like we're seeing here, start wearing a mask. Maybe you need to not go to a social gathering where people will not be wearing masks. So you need to modify your lifestyle based on this. Now, it's hard. It's hard because everybody wants to make plans, right? People want to go on cruises. I just had uh, someone who works with me, went on a cruise, came back. She and her whole family were COVID positive. Despite the restrictions, you know, testing within 48 hours of getting on there. You know, you go to a ball game, right? They're, sadly, people know they're positive in many cases, but, well, I got tickets. I still want to get there. You know no one's wearing a mask. So you're leaving yourself susceptible the least you can do in that situation is wear a mask. Sadly, the other people won't be wearing masks. Otherwise, you know you have more barriers to getting ill. So we really need to stay on this. The Novavax uh, vaccine just became approved. We talked about that a couple of weeks ago on the program. So Novavax is based on an old model for delivering vaccine immunity, right? So much like when you get a tetanus shot or hepatitis B or HPV, in this case, they actually inject you with the pathogen so that you produce antibodies. That's the traditional way. So if people say, oh, I don't want messenger RNA or uh, I'm afraid of the adenovirus delivery in Johnson & Johnson, now you have Novavax. So it takes away another excuse for not getting vaccinated. So if you're thinking, well, if the vaccine isn't helping, uh, why should I get it? It is helping. Because as I've said before, there are two decisions to make here. One, do I mind becoming infected? And two, do I mind dying? If you mind dying, if that's going to get in the way of your life, which it should if you die, you will then get vaccinated, right? And be careful. You're going to wear a mask, you're going to take precautions, but you're going to get vaccinated and boosted. We know that keeps people from dying. If you don't mind getting infected, right, and losing a few days of work, not being around your family, being isolated, changing your plans, then 
don't wear a mask in a crowded setting. Okay? But if you are positive, make sure you stay home, that you isolate. Masks are still the key to getting ahead in this. Uh, our guest today is going to be a, a friend and, and uh, a person we haven't had on the program in, in quite a while. It's going to be Dr. Tanya Bilchik. Dr. Bilchik was one of our first guests on this program in 2009, and I'm glad we can get her back on here. She is a headache specialist and an assistant clinical professor at Yale now. She was in private practice in the Hartford area at the time she was on last. And she's been a very reliable resource of information. One thing for certain, when she is on the program, we get a lot of questions. So if you have questions about headache, diagnosis, some of the new treatments, shoot them off now to info at alessimd.com. And I will use those questions while she's on the air in the second half of our program. Um, she's just an, an outstanding um, resource for all of us. We're going to take a short break. Then we're going to be back to talk a little bit more about uh, COVID and about a situation and an interview I did last week for Headline News. You're listening to Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080. We're back on Healthy Rounds. I'm your host, Dr. Anthony Alessi. And I want to get into some of the emails I've been receiving uh, that uh, really deserve mention on the radio. And that is uh, one listener emailed me regarding the use of disinfectant, meaning when they get groceries or anything delivered to the house, should they be wiping everything down and disinfecting? And what we've learned uh, over time has been that that is not of significant use in disinfected. The virus doesn't live very long on a surface such as packaging and things like that. So there really is no need to be disinfecting things that come into your house. And uh, one of the things, uh, but I, I will tell you that, for example, I need to be on a plane for business tomorrow. Um, I will be disinfecting my seat. I have done that before COVID and will continue to do that. So I use those wipes, uh, Purell wipes, and wipe down the arms and the tray table and especially the seat belt um, before I uh, touch anything on, on the plane. So no need to do a lot of disinfecting for products coming into your home. Um, but as I said, the key item here are masks, social distance, and washing hands. Another question that came up is the COVID test, the home COVID tests that you use uh, that may be expired. And that's been interesting. There is an expiration date on home COVID tests, but... Recently, they have found that those can be extended. So don't throw out a kit because it has an expiration date. You can go to the manufacturer or you can go to the FDA website and see if that has been extended. Obviously, if it goes far beyond the date and it is a legitimate expiration date, the result may be less reliable. So those are two great questions that came in. 
One other topic that comes up and, and I was asked about is why were we able to eradicate smallpox and we're not able to do that with COVID-19? Because they're both viruses. And uh, it's a very interesting case. So we have the SARS-CoV-2 and smallpox. You know, smallpox only lives in humans. That's the only host. Whereas SARS-CoV-2 has multiple reservoirs in animals. So again, you would have to wipe it out in all of the various reservoirs. So from that standpoint, it's more difficult. Also, smallpox are easy to identify, right? You're going to get a rash as opposed to SARS-CoV-2. When we think about it, right, all you're having are flu-like symptoms. Do I have the flu? With the new BA5, you think maybe you have an allergy. You just have kind of a head cold. So, again, it's hard to identify. You're thinking of other things you may have. And the only way we identify it is with testing as opposed to smallpox. Smallpox, although it will, it will spread with respiratory contact and with droplets, it's not as aerosol as COVID-2. So COVID really has this aerosol component to it that was not the case with smallpox, in addition to being droplets. And, you know, once you either had the smallpox infection or you got vaccinated, your immunity was essentially lifelong. You didn't have to be vaccinated again, right? Because of the limits of the virus. The SARS-CoV-2 virus is a much smarter virus and much more ubiquitous in the sense that it knows how to evade immunity. And that's why we need multiple vaccines at different times. So. Uh, I think it was a great question that came in, and uh, really that's how smallpox was easier to conquer. Uh, last week I was contacted by uh, Headline News uh, 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 Morning Report with uh, Robin Mead and actually did an interview with Elizabeth Prun. It was an interesting conversation. They asked me uh, to be interviewed regarding the topic of prosopagnosia. Apparently, Brad Pitt came out in a recent interview that said he has facial blindness, which is the common term for prosopagnosia. And what it is, is the inability to identify faces. And it is a language disorder that is the result of a variety of brain conditions, typically brain trauma, brain tumor. But it can also be congenital. We see it with stroke. And we see it with neurodegenerative disorders. So we have to take a step back. Let's talk a little bit about the various language disorders. When we think of those in neurology, we deal with agnosia. As I said, the inability to recognize or and identify objects or persons. Aphasia, which is something we spoke about in the past with respect to Bruce Willis who is now suffering from an aphasia. And that's the impairment of the ability to use or understand language. And then the other topic is apraxia, which is impairment in the execution of a voluntary movement. 
So to explain the three, if you had a pencil, right, someone with agnosia would be able to describe the pencil, the color and um, the shape of it, but wouldn't be able to tell you that it's a pencil. They wouldn't be able to identify that object. Someone with aphasia may know it's a pencil, but they can't say the word. And someone with apraxia, interestingly, will know what it is. And when you hand it to them, they will have no idea of what to do with that pencil. So they will not be able to push forward with a voluntary movement to use that effectively. So in the case of Brad Pitt, it's most likely a congenital inherited problem. And what we've been finding out in years is that it's not that rare. About 1 in 50 people do suffer from facial blindness. And it's one of those conditions you wouldn't know you had, right? It's kind of like color blindness. You just think that that's the way everybody else sees and that's the way everybody else functions. We became familiar with it in the 1940s when uh, young men came back from World War II who had brain injuries and couldn't recognize family members. We didn't know what it was. And it wasn't until the 60s that we really found out that this is what it was. Uh, people who had brain tumors who were removed suddenly would not be able to recognize family members and familiar faces. So you might say, how do you, how do you get around that? Because people have. Oliver Sacks, a famous English neurologist and, and writer, prolific writer, he suffered from facial blindness. Um, Jane Goodall, the, the famous scientist, had this. So what do they do? And what happens is they're able to identify other features. They develop a strategy. So based on the person's attire, based on their haircut or hair pattern, body shape, and especially their voice. So these folks develop a more keen voice for a more keen hearing for the intonation of someone's voice so they'll know who they're talking to. But you also have to imagine that these people also are seen as being somewhat aloof, right? So you pass someone in the hallway and don't say hello to them because you don't recognize them unless they speak to you. So right away that person is saying, well, what did I do to him or her? Or why aren't they saying hello to me? And they see me here. And that's why I found it amazing that someone as successful in the entertainment business as Brad Pitt uh, would have this condition and would have to develop a real compensatory strategy to deal with it. So, uh, again, it brings to light really the issues with the human brain that we have gradually learned more and more about. We don't know where it's isolated to, or what part of the brain, like saying, aha, this is the center for visual agnosia um, and facial blindness. But it's fascinating um, to really think about and see how people work around a, a lot of these uh, different problems. Uh, just a note to everybody, uh, the vaccine is now available for children ages six months to age five. And I urge people to get their children and grandchildren to get the vaccine as my grandchildren have. 
you know, sometimes the best advice is when you ask somebody, what would you do in this situation? And I come from a medical family, and we have opted to make sure these young children are vaccinated and give them every advantage against this virus. We're going to take a short break. Then we're going to be back with my guest, Dr. Tanya Bilchik, and we're going to be talking about headache, the recent changes in the treatment of headache. You're listening to Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080. I'm your host, Dr. Anthony Alessi. And uh, before we get to our guest, I had an email from SEAL. Um, and this is an interesting uh, situation where it's someone who has a dizziness associated with getting vaccines, whether it be COVID or other uh, vaccines. And uh, she got the shots, but wants to avoid uh, having to go to the emergency room for the dizziness. And typically the dizziness, as she describes, comes on a week or two after the shots. Um, and doctors are still puzzled as to whether there's a relationship or not. So one thing, uh, some people do get a reaction to any of the vaccines, whether it be for pneumonia, COVID, uh, or uh, the flu. And in some cases, your doctor may recommend pre-treatment with the medication, or in your case, if it's going to come on two weeks after, possibly treating prophylactically with a medication for dizziness. So um, I think there's a solution there to discuss with your physician where after you get the va a vaccine, start a medication to avoid the dizziness. Uh, great question. Thanks. And, and as always, um, the questions, if you have questions even today for Dr. Bilchik, it's info at alessimd.com. With that, it takes uh, it gives me great pleasure to introduce Dr. Tanya Bilchik, Assistant Professor of Clinical Neurology, a headache specialist, and just a great friend of our program and one of our most popular guests uh, over the past 13 years. Tanya, welcome back to the show. Thank you for having me again. Let's talk about it. Headaches. Um, and so much has changed in the area of headaches, but as a matter of review for our listeners, can you go over some of the basic headache types? Okay. Let's start with the most common headache disorder that people will have but not necessarily see their doctor for, and that is a tension headache. And there are very few people in the world that have never had a headache. Most of the time, it's a mild to moderate headache. It's episodic. In other words, it's not all the time, and it's a moderate headache, mild to moderate, bitemporal, in other words, both sides of the head, described as pressure-like, band-like, tight, can be associated with some neck muscle tightness, and very importantly, it does not have what we usually see with migraines. So there's no nausea, there's no light sensitivity. There's no noise sensitivity, and there's no movement sensitivity. The headache does not get worse with activity, and in fact, sometimes it gets a little better. So that's our kind of most common headache, and generally takes some over-the-counter medication, hydrate, and the headache goes away. So you're not generally going to see your doctor for a tension headache. However, most of what I see and most of what primary care doctors see is a migraine. 
Migraine headaches are not uncommon. In fact, if you look at the female population between the ages of 15 to 60, it's probably one in five. So it's not an uncommon headache disorder, but it is a disabling headache disorder. It's a moderately severe headache. It can be one-sided or both sides. It is associated with pretty typical cardinal findings of migraine, light sensitivity and noise sensitivity, and or nausea and vomiting. And about 15 to 20% of people that have migraine have what we call a migraine aura, which is visual changes, flashing lights, numbness occasionally. And so that is often familial and it's more disabling. And that's the migraine that people are missing work for, missing school for, and need to see a doctor for if the -the over-the-counter medications don't work. So those are our two most common headache disorders. And then there are a couple of rare headache disorders that are um, very severe, one-sided, and cause eye tearing, nasal stuffiness. And everybody who says they've got the worst headache ever says they've got cluster headaches. Well, if you really have a cluster headache, it is so bad you can't sit still, you're irritable, you're uncomfortable. And if you have cluster headaches, you know you've got them. And unfortunately, it also gets misdiagnosed. And I've had patients, and I've even misdiagnosed patients. I've said, oh, it sounds like a migraine. In retrospect, it's probably a cluster. So I'd say tension headache, most common. Everybody gets one. Migraine headaches, pretty common, more common in women than men. And then very rarely cluster headaches. That's a simple kind of explanation of different types. Oh, no, those are great because... You know, often with cluster, it doesn't follow the typical pattern, right, of nocturnal headaches in a smoker, and it it doesn't necessarily fit that pattern. Am I correct? Yes, and in fact, cluster headaches are one of the few headaches disorders that are more common in men. Most of our headache disorders are more common in women. Clusters are more common in men, probably two-thirds male to one-third female, pretty rare, fortunately, but really disabling, can wake people up from sleep usually around the eye, but associated with eye-tearing, nasal stuffiness. We call them autonomic symptoms. So they have other symptoms involved. And uh, we do have treatment for cluster, which is fortunate because 30 years ago there wasn't. Tanya, one of the things I see a lot are cervicogenic headaches. Um, Can you talk a little bit about them and their relationship either to tension, headache, or migraine? Okay. Well... You know, I always say if you have migraine, you're much more predisposed to getting other kinds of headaches, too. So when I see somebody who is older, kind of beyond 60, 70, and they present with new-onset headache, I always examine the neck. So a cervicogenic headache is a headache that is related to either degenerative disease of the neck, whiplash, head trauma, something like that. But the origin is predominantly from the upper cervical nerves the upper cervical muscles. You know, your quote-unquote textbook cervicogenic headache is supposed to be a unilateral headache, a one-sided headache that can be reproduced by certain maneuvers. Um, that's your kind of classic textbook uh, classification of a, of a cervicogenic headache. However, if you liberalize that um, definition, any headache that is coming from the area of the neck could either be a tension-type headache or a cervicogenic headache, and that is a headache that does pretty well 
with physical therapy and um, mild muscle relaxants, and there's often kind of a cause. Either there's degenerative disease in the neck, arthritis in the neck, some kind of trauma, um, car accidents, tight neck muscles, staring at a computer for way too long. I saw a lot more headaches coming from the area of the neck um, during COVID when people were working from home. And then it's kind of sometimes hard to tell, is it cervicogenic or is it tension? Because often they'll sound the same. Tight band-like headaches starting in the back, radiating to the temples without migraineous features. And that's really important. That's how you distinguish them from migraine. And uh, I'm glad you mentioned the trauma because a lot of people who are in a car accident will have like a whiplash injury. And when they later develop headaches, right away they think it's a concussion or they have some type of severe uh, brain injury, even though they've never uh, really struck their head. Um, so, it, and they're really very anxious when the headaches start. So, um, yeah. it's very important to uh, let's talk a little bit. We spend a lot of time on this program talking about COVID, and oh. I see uh, patients who may come in with headache uh, after COVID, uh, as in other conditions. But can you talk a little bit about um, headaches uh, as they develop in people who have had COVID? Um, actually, it's very interesting because neurologic symptoms are pretty common with acute COVID infections, and headache is the most common of the neurological symptoms that happen during COVID. So not only do you get headache associated with the viral infection of COVID, and that can be, you know, of long duration, but you can also have post-viral headaches or post-COVID headaches that can be you know, pretty annoying, pretty disabling, and more likely to have these long, it can be part of this whole long COVID or long haulers COVID syndrome, and it can be, you know, pretty disabling. And I've had my migraine patients, and in fact, I think having a history, and they've documented having a history, a pre-existing headache history, and then having COVID makes it a lot more likely that you will develop this long post-COVID headache. And so I really look at the post-COVID headaches as what do they sound like? Do they sound like a chronic daily headache? In other words, did the headache start with COVID and they've never had a history of headache before? Or do they have a pre-existing history of migraine and it got worse with COVID? And I think my most difficult patients to treat, my most difficult migraine patients to treat, have been the ones that have developed long-duration chronic daily headache post-COVID because not only do they have the headache, they have the brain fog and the cognitive changes and the fatigue and all the other post-COVID symptoms. So sometimes it's hard to tell. So what I do is I treat them like they sound. If it sounds like a migraine, I treat it like a migraine. If it sounds like a chronic tension-type headache, I'll treat it that way. And the virus itself does not really, as far as we're aware, does not enter the central nervous system. But it's possible that the body's way of fighting the virus, the inflammation, can can set up the secondary type of headache post-viral. Those patients are typically patients, I want to be clear, that have not had a headache syndrome before COVID. Am I oh, correct? Um, the ones that are the most difficult to treat? No, actually, I think my most difficult to treat, and this is just my personal experience, my most difficult to treat patients are my patients with pre-existing chronic migraine okay. who then have COVID, who then get a lot worse. 
I think I've also seen patients that have had headaches that have never had headaches that develop COVID-related headaches, and it can last for months and months and months. But my, I'd say in my practice, and again, this is my experience, my more difficult to treat patients have been the ones that have a pre-existing kind of a pre-existing migraine or chronic migraine. Chronic migraine is somebody with more headache days than not, who then get COVID and then get daily headaches after COVID, where prior to COVID, they've been under reasonable control. So those are much more complicated for me. Let's move on to treatment. Uh, Back in 2009, we spoke about the potential for CGRP, calcitonin gene-related peptide antagonists. And uh, it went through, those drugs went through so many iterations. They were um, started, the drug trials, drug trials ended. But now um, it seems like they in particular have become an anchor treatment for migraine uh, headaches. So let's back up. Let's get on the topic here. Let's talk about treatment, but I definitely want to spend some time on CGRP antagonists. Okay, so let's start with, let's start with history. I mean, in history, even prior to the 2010s, they actually found in the early 90s when they were looking at mechanism of migraine that during an acute migraine attack, CGRP, which is calcitonin gene-related peptide, which is a neurotransmitter, was released during an acute migraine attack. And then when the patients were treated with our meds that we had in the 90s, sumatriptan being Imatrix, one of them, when the migraine was treated with Imatrix, the CGRP level went down. So they knew that CGRP was really important in the mechanism of migraine. So fast forward to the late 1990s, they started looking at blocking CGRP from getting to the CGRP receptor for acute migraine. And there were a couple of really good drugs that we trialed. I did some clinical trials in those days. And um, Merck actually had one of the products, and it was a really good oral medication for acute treatment of migraine. When they started looking at it for migraine prevention, this is a small oral molecule, it showed some liver enzyme abnormalities. So that was quickly ditched, and that was early 90s. And then there was a whole lot of very careful research with those molecules as well as monoclonal antibodies, which became the new way to treat all sorts of conditions. And the monoclonal antibody is an antibody, it's an IgG antibody that's injected into the body and can either block the CGRP receptor or attach to the CGRP itself. And in that way, block that mechanism of migraines. So we started looking at these in the kind of 2015 range, and they came to commercial viability about three years ago, and those have absolutely revolutionized migraine prevention. Once a month injectable, block the CGRP receptor or prevent the CGRP from getting to its receptor, and if you can block CGRP, which is this neuropeptide, neuroinflammation, block that, you can therefore block migraines. So we have three of them. There is the Renumab, which is Amovig. It was the first one out. The second one out was a Jovi or Fremenizumab, and the last one was Gulcanizumab or Emgality. The last two that I mentioned actually attached to the CGRP itself, and the Amovig or the Arenumab blocks the CGRP receptor. So we had those, and they've changed migraine prevention. Therefore, migraine prevention for people with frequent migraines as well as chronic migraine. 
side effects are minimal. You just have to inject yourself. And those have really changed prevention. But then they also went back to the molecules that they had in the late 1990s that they had been tweaking for the last 15, 20 years. And they started introducing those for acute treatment of migraine. And then in the most recent kind of past year and a half, they've actually used those daily CGRP-blocking medications for migraine prevention. So now we have a whole host of new little small molecules taken by mouth for acute treatment of migraine. They also block CGRP. So those are known as the GPANs. So the injectables are the MABs, M-A-B-S, monoclonal antibodies, and the small molecules are the GPANs, the G-E-P-A-N-T. And people have been watching television ads there is ubrodepent or ubrelvi, that's for acute treatment of migraine. And as my patient will tell me, that's the Serena Williams one. Right. Then, <laughs> then you have the Nurtec or Rimagepant, and actually that's a local Connecticut company called Biohaven. And they have Nurtec, Rimagepant, and I think that was uh, a Khloe Kardashian one, I believe. You know, Correct. they always tell me they want the one that they, that they television people. And so, but they both of very good acute migraine treatments. And as opposed to the old meds that we used to have, the triptans, which caused blood vessel narrowing and were effective, but we had to be careful how we used them, these medications don't seem to have any of those risks. So we can use them in a greater population. So in the last five years, I always say to the headache fellows in neurology that we have that they are treating headaches in a really unique Time because now we have so many options. When I started out in the early 1990s, we I was excited because we got triptan, sumatriptan, which is Imatrex, Maxalt, Zomig, and I thought this was revolutionary. So welcome to the new revolution in migraine. Well, I, I, I started before you. We were still using ergotamine suppositories. Um, ah, uh, well, now if you 80s, want to talk so. about ergotamines, what is old is new again. There are a new, new old drugs reformulated. So DHT, dihydrogotamine 45, yeah. DHT 45, yeah. is now back in other ways, not only injectable, but also in nasal spray formulations without as many of the side effects that we used to have when we used them wow. uh, in the early 90s. Wow. That's, don't throw out your wide ties. Uh, yeah. You never know. But... Let, just going back a little bit and talking about the CGRP antagonist, one of the biggest obstacles is getting it paid for, right? Right. There, do you still face those restrictions where they want you to have failed at least three other medications before uh, you pres a little prescribe? Better. They want us to try a couple of, well, let's talk about whether we're using it for acute or prevention. So if we're using it for prevention, which is the once a month injectables Injection. mostly, or there are oral medications. The GPANs have also been approved. There is a new one called Quilipta, a Togepant, and then the Nurtec or Romagepant can also be used. Um, for the injectables for prevention, they want us to have tried one or two, depending on the insurance company. And I'm pleased to say that Connecticut Medicaid and under Medicare, those medications are covered. So that's been huge in the last year or two, that the coverage has expanded. They don't need you to try three or four. I call the old ones the oldies but goodies. 
Um, I think that it's getting so much easier to get coverage. I don't think that, I mean, they are very costly. They're $800 a month if you don't have insurance coverage. But most people, even with the state Medicaid and the Husky programs, are covered now with with pretty much all of them. And then with the orals, they, again, have to have tried and failed a couple of the older medications unless they have contraindications to the older medications. And same thing. If you have tried one or two of the older ones, it's not that hard anymore to get prior authorization. And I think it goes without saying that, you know, the treatment of headache has become sophisticated enough that it's not just one medication you take. Um, you know, oh, yeah. it, it, I mean, it's really an approach, including, and we didn't even get into it, we don't have that much time, uh, the use of Botox and Botox ah. injections, which I know you've been doing for years and have helped yes. many, many, many people. Yeah, Botox has been, uh, Botox is approved only for chronic migraine. Chronic migraine is more than 15 headache days per month. So it was a pretty incapacitated group of patients. And Botox was, we finished the Botox studies in 2009, and Botox was approved for migraine prevention over 10 years ago. And I think it's been very successful. It also works on the neurochemicals, but in a different way. It doesn't work by just relaxing the muscles. That, I think, has been proven, that relaxing the muscles is not how Botox works in headache. It's actually more working neurochemically, just like everything else. We found it worked, then we had to work out why it worked. So I've been doing Botox since 2002, way before it got FDA. Oh, I know. It's about techniques. Tanya, it's been great to have you on, um, as always. And thanks for all the good work you do. Um, I'm sorry you're not up here uh, in the Hartford area, but it's not that long a drive to Yale uh, to see you there. And can you give us the phone number um, for people Uh, who would like to make an appointment to see you? Yeah, I think the best way to get an appointment is to have your primary care physician refer, but the main number for um, Yale All of Neurology booking, it's called the Care Center, and the phone number is 203-785-4085. And we're on EPIC, which is the Electronic Medical Records System. So it makes it pretty easy because UConn has EPIC, Hartford has EPIC, pretty much St. Francis has EPIC. It's become a very right. universal healthcare system. So referrals can come from your primary care physician through EPIC. Great. Thank you. Thank you again, Tanya. Thank you for having me. All right. We're going to take a short break. Then we're going to be back to wrap it up. You're listening to Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080. Many thanks to our studio producer today. Tom Conley's been kind enough to be on the board. Uh, and Jeff Chandler's in charge of sales and marketing for Healthy Rounds. I want to make sure everyone is aware that the National Suicide Hotline is changing to 988 today. This is a very valuable resource. If you or someone dear to you is contemplating suicide, please use that 988 number. Until next week, this is Dr. Anthony Alessi. Please stay healthy. This has been Healthy Rounds with Dr. Anthony Alessi. Sponsored by St. Francis Hospital, Ratchford Eye Center, Hartford Healthcare, MD Advantage, and UConn Health Orthopedics and Sports Medicine. Be sure to tune in next Saturday morning at 11 for more Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080 and WTIC.com.